Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good weekend to you food lovers, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. On this show, you'll hear from chefs and artisan food makers, farmers, authors, and travel experts, sommeliers, and tastemakers, all of whom are passionate about everything delicious. It's my goal to feed your soul, so don't touch your dial, because I have an hour of scintillating and scrumptious conversation coming up. I am always serving up seconds, by the way, at chefjamie.com, where you can find radio podcasts of shows you might have missed. They're also posted along with my homepage postings on iTunes, FeedBurner, and Blueberry. You just want to search Chef Jamie Gwen. And you can find my daily dish, shameless as it is, what I ate, what you ate, what I'm cooking, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. I like to kick off this show with a lesson in food to make you the best cook you know. And I thought we would talk phyllo today, shall we? Phyllo isn't actually the most forgiving dough. It takes some patience and a, a small amount of finesse. But those crunchy, lighter-than-air layers are so worth the effort, right? That cheesy, beautiful dish that everyone knows and loves, Spanakopita, just wouldn't be the same without phyllo. I happen to think that phyllo is a freezer aisle miracle. So this is the lowdown on what you need to know about phyllo. Phyllo actually translates to leaf in Greek, and it is a tissue paper thin-like sheet of dough made very simply from flour, water, and a bit of oil. However, phyllo dough was not born in Greece, rather in Istanbul. The name phyllo is Greek, but the dough technique itself is Turkish. Now, of all Turkey's delicious sweet confections, the most famous is baklava, I happen to love the exquisitely flavored, nutty, honey-laden pastry that has been made for centuries, and I love food facts, too. The earliest known version of baklava was actually baked only on special occasions. In fact, historically, baklava was considered a food for the rich until the mid-19th century. But phyllo has come a long way. And here in America, we now use it for a multitude of sweet and savory dishes. Phyllo can enclose a huge variety of fillings, both savory and sweet. It can, of course, be assembled in a variety of shapes and sizes, like a cone or a crust or a purse or a triangle. You can twist it and fold it and roll it and press it into a pie. I use a muffin pan. Stay tuned. Great tip and recipe coming up. And you can use it as a substitute for pie and pastry dough if you want to go a little lighter. Now, you can also shred it using a sharp knife and use it to make uh, a nest, which you bake, which looks so truly fabulous. And it can be cut very easily to make bite-sized appetizer size, uh, you know, let's say starters. Oh, then of course you can leave it large and roll it to make a strudel. So the possibilities are endless. Now here is how to use phyllo. Maybe you need a refresher or you haven't attempted to use the flaky, delicious pastry before. You should really experiment. 
First, when it comes to phyllo, you must defrost properly. You can't really rush this part. You refrigerate the box of frozen phyllo for at least eight hours. I like to refrigerate for overnight and you allow it to thaw and then you'll need to leave it at room temperature for about a half an hour until all the sheets are pliable. If you jump the gun, it will lead to cracks, which of course just won't do, right? Then of course, when it comes to phyllo, one of my favorite parts is that you need plenty of fat. In order to get golden individual layers, you have to brush each layer of phyllo with butter or oil. Now, I like butter. That's not a shocker if you know me or if you've listened to this show for a long time. You'll need a pastry brush. And do remember that each sheet will soak up around a tablespoon of butter. So do plan accordingly. Now, it's the butter that leads to that perfectly golden color And of course, the fabulous flavor. So use good quality butter and it should be unsalted, of course. You'll want to keep the phyllo covered as well when you're working with it because working layer by layer does take time. And you'll keep the rest of the phyllo dough covered or wrapped so that it doesn't dry out in the process. Now, some chefs like plastic wrap. I happen to like a barely damp kitchen towel. I think it works best. You don't want to wet the towel and wring it dry. You just want to dampen it lightly under the kitchen sink, shake it out a bit, and then lay it over the layers of phyllo. And as you take a layer, cover the remaining layers with a towel, uh, that barely damp kitchen towel, of course, and it will stay pliable instead of getting brittle. Now, if you didn't know, one package of phyllo contains dozens of paper-thin sheets. So it's a very cost-effective way to uh, pull out all the stops, you could say. Most preparations or recipes that you'll find, though, use five or six of the sheets stacked together. And that's what gives you that really uh, decadent, you know, crumbly, layered pastry. Now, what do you use it for, you ask? Well, how about a quick weeknight chicken pot pie? You use leftover or let's say store-bought rotisserie chicken, some leftover cooked veggies, maybe some diced potatoes for the filling. And the phyllo crust is really simplicity itself. Just sheets of phyllo brushed with butter layered on top. And once you assemble it, You can bake it in less than 30 minutes, and it's really brilliant. Now, spanakopita, another great application for phyllo, that traditional uh, spinach pastry I mentioned earlier, very simple to master, very impressive to make as an appetizer. Baklava, a little bit more laborious, but still one of my favorites. How about making an apple strudel? Caramelized apples rolled in buttery phyllo, baked like a log, so good. And lastly, there is the phyllo cup. You could buy them, but why? It's one of the simplest preparations and it will make you a culinary hero. And you can fill a phyllo cup with just about anything. You can make them large or even small. You need a a mini muffin pan or a standard size muffin pan. And before the end of the hour, homemade phyllo cups are my last bite. So stay tuned. I will teach you how. 
I would also love to know what some of your favorite ways are to use phyllo. So please feel free to send your best recipes or your culinary queries via email direct. You can get to me at jamie, J-A-M-I-E at chefjamie.com. Okay. In food news this week, I love this story. By the French standard, a restaurant is awarded a Michelin star because they are top quality. They have amazing service. They serve out-of-this-world revolutionary food. But sometimes, and in fact, it just happened, you're awarded a Michelin star because the Michelin guide confused you with another restaurant. That is exactly what happened to Le Bouche à in Bourges, France. They were awarded a Michelin star earlier this month. However, the Michelin star was actually meant for a restaurant with the same name over a hundred miles away. Can you believe it? The difference uh, between the two restaurants uh, could not be greater. You see, the restaurant that was mistakenly given a Michelin star is a lunch-only bistro that offers burgers and fries. And the Michelin starred location has lobster and foie gras. But despite all of the confusion, all is well that ends well, the restaurant that was uh, certainly deserving of the star has been granted it. The mix-up has been fixed, but the burger joint benefited from all of the media attention that it's getting. And um, so as a result, the owner has um, even been invited to eat at the actual Michelin-starred restaurant of the same name. And you've got to love a food story with a happy ending, right? (laughs) And please don't touch your dial because we have grand guests coming up this hour. In fact, we are eating from the ground up next with author Alana Chernilla. She has recipes for simple, perfect vegetables. And later in the hour, he is Richard Carlton Hacker, a world-renowned connoisseur of spirits. Do you know your scotch from your whiskey? Well, we'll bring you up to date on all the libations worthy of cheers. Stay tuned. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio and the delicious conversation continues right after this. And welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Raise your glass because we're about to talk spirits. You see, Richard Carlton Hacker believes that one of the saddest refrains in the English language is last call. And that's why I like him. So you know how to drink, but do you really know the historical merits of your favorite scotch or whiskey? Do you know the difference between the two spirits for a lively dinner party conversation? Well, in the Connoisseur's Guide 
to Worldwide Spirits, Richard's long-awaited book release, he reveals the definitive answers about your favorite libations. Richard Carlton Hacker is an international writer and photographer and a lifetime member of the exclusive Keeper of the Quake Society, along with being one of less than 300 masters of the quake in the world. Oh, he was knighted in Germany as well. And I am delighted that Richard is sitting down to dish as we talk about him as a connoisseur and worldwide spirits, of course. And I'm glad to have you, Richard. Welcome. Thank you, Jamie. It's, yes. it's my pleasure. Well, thank you. Could you define quake, please? <laughs> the, the word is spelled Q-U-A-I-C-H, and it's not one I know well. Well, not many people on this side of the pond do. <laughs> But it's it's an old Gaelic word, and, and a quake is a pewter cup that you hold in your hand, and there's handles on either side, so you hold it with both hands, and you fill it with malt whiskey, mm-hmm. Scotch malt whiskey, and you hand it to a guest as he enters your house. Now, the tradition is if he drinks too little, that means he's stingy. <laughs> if he drinks too much, that means he's greedy. So the pressure's on him to drink just the right amount, and if he does, then you know you've got a really good friend. Okay, so would you assume, please, that I took the perfect sip and welcomed me into your world? I think you're the perfect friend. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you. Okay, well, I think you're the perfect friend, Richard. And, and the best person I can think of to invite to a dinner party to talk spirits. I'm, I'm immensely impressed by your extraordinary ongoing education uh, and your commitment to this wonderful wide world of beautiful libations. And I think we should start off with a review on how to taste, because I have read your book cover to cover, and it was really enlightening to me. There are so many things about this wonderful cocktail hour there that are still to learn. To taste a spirit, um, there are a number of steps. And the first one, of course, is to nose it. You actually put your nose into the glass, not deep into it, but just below on the surface of where the lip of the um, glass is, Mm -hmm. because you don't want to overburden your olfactory senses with Mm -hmm. that sting of alcohol. And so the way you do that is you open your mouth and you take a breath. By opening the mouth, you don't get the sting. And you can try this at home. You can take a deep breath. Uh, with your favorite libation, with your mouth closed, and you'll feel that little alcoholic sting. Or you can try with the mouth open, the sting goes away. So that's the first thing. And then what I do at this point, I mentally dissect what I'm smelling. In other words, I, I visualize it in layers, and I try to define what those layers are. Am I getting, uh, you know, keep it simple, and then you can get more complex, um, as, as I've done over the years. But, you know, is it smoky? Is it sweet? Is it uh, sugary? Uh, uh, and you just go on down the line. Then you can say, okay, I'm getting fruit. Well, then you can say, well, what kind of fruit? And then you can say, well, I'm getting apples or I'm getting you know, pears or grapes. So you can carry this to an infinitum if you want. That's, mm-hmm. the, that's just the nosing. Then the next step, of course, is you take a sip. You know, not a gulp. You take a sip and you kind of slosh it around in your mouth. You chew it, if you will. Uh, you're, what you're doing is just spreading that liquid across your tongue, and then you swallow it. And when you swallow it, you're getting another taste that's much more potent than the smell. But what happens is when you breathe out, you're getting all those aromas really accentuated, like under a microscope. And it's coming out now. It's coming out 
through your your nose. You've got you know over forty thousand olfactory senses in your nose. You got seven in your mouth. Mm-hmm. So you've really analyzed this thing. So I do that a couple times, and I just write down my little notes. And um, you know you can you can let this get out of hand as I've done. <laughs> I've written. <laughs> I mean, I, and this is true. I I will find myself in a restaurant subconsciously picking up a glass of water, swirling it, yes, <laughs> and nosing it, and and writing notes, of course. Yes. No, but but I do think that because the beverage world, and I'll call it that because it is so uh, absolutely widespread today, because there are so many different choices in what we drink and not only our particular drink of choice, but when it comes to searching around the world for unique spirits or uh, when you talk about scotch versus whiskey and, and the, the spirits that, you know, continue to elevate. I think that tasting notes or even mental notes of what it is, the virtues, the attributes of what it is you're tasting that you really appreciate and like definitely aid in the education of finding your own perfect palate pleaser. And that's what I'm all about. You, you don't have to become a master sommelier to truly appreciate wine. But if you know what you like and you can put your finger on it, I was always taught to open my mouth going back to the nose and the nosing as you were speaking about because it actually opened the palate. And when I sit and taste wine with friends, I encourage everyone to open their mouth. And I always get one of those oohs and ahs kind of moments, Richard, because you do realize how much more you're getting in the sense of the bouquet and how much you can put your finger on and then decipher what you like or love from it. And so that tasting is is so essential. Absolutely. And, and it is important, as you said, to, to realize what you like. Um, people say, oh, I, I don't like white wine, and, and they make a generalization. Well, there may be some white wines that you would like once you start knowing the varieties. The same thing with, with spirits and whiskeys. Uh, they, you know, uh, have a learning curve all their own. And that's why, you know, people say, what's your favorite drink? And I always say, whatever is in my glass at the time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I can relate. Um, let's talk about specific spirits, please. And if you would, give us a little bit of, of your historical genius um, and maybe the this, this state of the spirit today, ever growing in popularity. Um, and we'll talk about everyone's favorites, but I will selfishly ask you to talk vodka first because I did want you to know I am a Grey Goose girl and not by choosing a frosted bottle, but because I have tested myself and I can choose Grey Goose in a blind tasting. And to me, that is a testament to the continuity of my palate. Absolutely. And that's quite a compliment, actually, uh, to your, to your palate, Jamie, because I'm one of the judges at uh, the uh, San Francisco World Spirits Competition, and yes. they always start my team off with a flight of vodkas. So we have like 25 vodkas in tasting glasses. And anybody who believes the uh, government's definition of vodka is clear, tasteless, odorless, they've been going to the wrong bars. Um, We need to take a quick break. Richard, you will stay with me, please. I'd be happy to. I'd love that. When we come back, if you are a scotch aficionado, then you'll learn everything you need to know. Richard Carlton Hacker is here, the author of The Connoisseur's Guide to Worldwide Spirits. So... 
Take a break, fill your glass, and come back as the delicious conversation continues right after this. back and we're dishing Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, toasting the weekend with Richard Carlton Hacker. His new definitive book on the world of spirits is being highly praised. He is a longtime and experienced taster and expert, and we've been dishing on your favorite libations. Um, Richard, I know you could go on for days, if not months, uh, on scotch and whiskey, um, but give us the lowdown, please. One of the biggest uh, problems, if you will, is people say whiskey, and they say whiskey as an all-encompassing word, and, and whiskey itself actually comes from the uh, the old Scotch whiskey-bea, whiskey-bea meaning water of life, and whiskey-bea got anglicized into whiskey through a course of centuries. So we call Scotch whiskey, we call bourbon whiskey, but what's really, really interesting, I think, as a writer, is uh, whiskey is spelled without an E when it's from Scotland and it's from Canada, and then whiskey is spelled with an E, hmm. uh, you know, K-E-Y, if it's American whiskey or, believe it or not, Irish whiskey. So when I'm writing, and this book is a great example, I was just paranoid with a proofreader who I never met, didn't know, and didn't even know if he drank, I sent him, I don't know how many emails saying, do not change the spelling of the word whiskey is not misspelled. It's spelled two different ways. One must know. That's right. One must know. So you are a scotch drinker? Primarily right now. You know, I change with the seasons. Right now I'm a single malt drinker. Um, I uh, began drinking bourbon. I love bourbon. And bourbon I segued into a single malt scotch. Um, and now, of course, the next big thing is rye, rye whiskey, which uh, actually predated bourbon in this yes. country. And um, I'm finding some really interesting ryes, and I love my, you know, I don't make cocktails, and I say that in the book because cocktails take time. I'd rather have somebody <laughs> who knows what they're doing make a cocktail for me. Yes. I will drink it straight at home. And uh, I, I, I have what I call the Lazy Man's Manhattan, which is basically chilled rye whiskey with a cherry in it. Oh, okay. I, I'm in. I, I, I'll <laughs> sip with you. You know, rye is actually experiencing um, a wonderful heightened awareness in multiple categories uh, across food and wine. We are seeing rye as the seed, uh, the the grain, you know, the, the grain, I suppose, mm-hmm. uh, being used more so than ever, you know, beyond rye bread. And so as a, as a spice, as a, a flavor enhancer, the flavor of rye is gaining popularity in the food world. And it's interesting to me to see the correlation between food and drink. Absolutely. Uh, it, it works really well. And um, I've done a number of articles on pairing a food with whiskeys and spirits, which is interesting because you, you pair them with wine, of course. We've always done that. But doing it with spirits is, is interesting because you have the same taste kind of parallels that you're looking for with with the food and Mm -hmm. the drink. But, of course, unlike wine, whiskey has a much higher alcoholic content, so you have to have to be careful. You know, you can't you can't take a uh, Cabernet glass full of uh, 
a Knob Creek 100 proof and have it with your steak because you're not going to be around to finish that steak. Exactly. That would be a waste of a steak. (laughs) It would. Can you talk Japanese whiskeys with us for just a moment? Because I was really fascinated to learn about the um, increased knowledge and popularity of them. Yes, they are reaching a place they probably should have been a few years ago. People have realized you've got like Yamazaki 18, which is a stunner, um, and people who don't particularly like uh, blended scotch, if you will, Mm and Japanese whiskey, even though it's single malt, is not a scotch. Scotch only comes from Scotland, as you know. But there's a a blended Japanese whiskey called Hibiki. And uh, when I was there the last time, I talked to the blender, and I found out there were 65 different single malts he uses to make hibiki. And it's just smooth, it's buttery, and people are now discovering all these other uh, Japanese whiskeys, which basically aren't exported all that much. I think they export about 30 of them, but they make hundreds in Japan. And even the Japanese are just starting to realize, hey, there's a bigger market out there than we thought. And America is probably their biggest market. Let's go back to cocktails for a moment. You talk about better bitters in the book. Mm -hmm. Is there such a thing as a better bitter? There is a bottle of bitters I happen to love, and it is molasses-infused. And I'm seeing a lot more of those flavor enhancers. There's something just smoky and rich and wonderfully uh, gingerbread cookie-esque about it. Um, And I love it. I happen to be a bitters fan. Well, bitters are interesting. And I found out the hard way you can only use so much. A little bit of bitters goes a A long long way. way. Yes, (laughs) You know this, but I had to find that out. And, of course, another thing, you know, there's a great, you know, correlation between cooking and, and, and drinking, believe it or not. But you know, once you put it in, you can't take it out. No, there is no no <laughs> way. I, I agree. But I happen to love a bitters and soda. Yes. And uh, Peixos has a great bitter. Um, Peixos does, yes. I, I, use, I use that a lot. I have, uh, mm. I have two bottles of it working, uh, believe it or not. And I keep one in the fridge. I keep one at room temperature. Um, but anyhow, uh, there are chocolate bitters. I mean... Um, Again, you have to be very, very careful when you're doing things like that because uh, the cucumber bitters, mm. um, I once took some cucumber bitters and put them in Hendrix rye. And, <gasps> rye. I mean, Hendrix um, gin. gin yeah. Yes. Because, uh, you know, Hendrix is cucumber-centric. So I think, gee, what if we did like an overdose on that? And then, of course, I put a slice of cucumber in the drink itself, and it was, it was really, really good. Of course, you've got to be in the mood for cucumbers. Well, yes, of course, but talk about refreshing. When, when spring and summer comes around, I'll use your inspiration there. No, absolutely. And uh, we were talking about my favorite drinks. Uh, in the summertime, I tend to go toward the, the clearer liquids. Uh, gin is a favorite of mine. I love yes. Plymouth. Um, and, and, and again, they're not paying me. I just love Plymouth Gin. Mm. And I like Blanco Tequila. Blanco more than Reposado or Añejo because you can't make a Reposado or an Añejo without a good Blanco to start with. Mm. Get back so to I your roots. I just love to sit back with a glass of, and I mean a glass, I have like a snifter yes. of uh, a Blanco. No ice, just room temperature. I sit on my front porch. Mm. And that's a nice, relaxing uh, way to watch the sun go down. That sounds lovely. When you mention tequila, that prompts me to think of Mezcal having its day in bars and restaurants across the country. That that smoke flavor, definitely a 2018 um, food trendsetter. And 
in, you know, incorporating that smokiness into a cocktail is no doubt hot right now. Absolutely. And uh, it's interesting you say that because most mixologists are using mezcal in a cocktail as part of the recipe as yes. opposed to right. making you know, a mezcal drink by itself. It's a, bl- it's a blender today, is it not? It is absolutely. A blending um, spirit. The good correlation to the smoky Isla single malts. You know, there's degrees of smokiness, and there's degrees of smokiness in mezcal, too. And mezcal is having its day. I don't think it's going to be as big as some of the other trendy things like rye, Mm. because it's kind of an acquired taste. You either like it or you don't like it. Yes, it is. I I agree with you for sure. I love when you pull out your crystal ball. Um, Leave us with a recommendation, if you would. For the best collectible, you speak about collectibles in the Connoisseur's Guide to Worldwide Spirits. Can you recommend something rare or desirable to show off? Well, I think what you want to be careful of if you're going to collect spirits or take something that you hope will appreciate in value is not to do like a pseudo-collectible, you know, only 10,000 bottles made. That, that's not what, what you're looking for. But you want something that can't be duplicated again. Mm. Um, McAllen has a program called Fine and Rare, and uh, are searching back through the warehouses and getting uh, a barrel of 1991 vintage single malt. And they, wow. Yeah. And, and, in fact, they just did that, and they released four bottles, and they priced them at $15,000 a piece. Oh. And I know what you're thinking, $15,000, where they all sold out, all four, within a week. It's insane. And no what's going to happen way. is those bottles are going to come on the secondary market in auctions, and, and there are some whiskey clubs that, that sell collectibles. Um and they're going to be higher priced. I'm very admiring of your knowledge and your <laughs> you. lifetime dedication. It is entitled The Connoisseur's Guide to Worldwide Spirits. It is written by Richard Carlton Hacker, and it offers a really intense education into the wide and wonderful world of cocktails. The book is available on Amazon and everywhere. And will you come back before our birthdays, Richard, you, so was, as not to risk anything? <laughs> I was just going to say, <laughs> let me be the first to wish you a happy birthday, but well, I think you... I thank you. I appreciate that. You're welcome here anytime. I I look forward to it. Thank you, Richard, so much. Thank you so much. Yes, cheers to you. As the delicious conversation continues in your radio, stay tuned. There is lots more to wet your palate and satiate your appetite right after this. Dig in with me every weekend for truly delectable conversation. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Alana Chernilla cooks with pleasure, and she's making vegetables sing. In her third cookbook, Eating from the Ground Up, Alana imparts insight 
into how to showcase the unique flavor and texture of your favorite veggies, giving each of us an opportunity to maximize the season's bounty or your garden or your farmer's market pleasures. So what is the best way to eat a radish? Well, Alana Chernilla is stopping by to teach us a few lessons today, and I always find her passion inspiring, and I am delighted to welcome you back. Oh, thank you so much, Jamie. Yes, of course. I'm so happy to be back. Well, thank you. Very much appreciated. Okay, uh, let's get down to the nitty-gritty, Alana. Is radish butter really the best way to eat a radish? Because you must start us off with your spring story, please. <laughs> you know, I got to say it is. Yes. I mean... I really, I feel like I love a good radish with salt. I just, I love plain radishes. But when you, when you chop a radish and fold it into good butter, so it's, it's worthwhile to really splurge on the good stuff at the grocery store. And then you can spread it on really thick because there's radishes in there. So it's, you know, you need a good, a good layer of butter. Mm. Um, You get the bitter, spicy radish mixed with the creamy butter and it's like both make each other more delicious. It's it's really one of my favorite things to eat in yes. the whole world. And supposedly your community ate nothing but radish butter, <laughs> yes. according to you, for a full week, which makes you very powerful, Alana. <laughs> it's true. I introduced my whole town to radish butter because, you know, it's like when I, I don't think I had ever really eaten a radish. It's like you eat the vegetables that you eat. And then when you come face to face with new vegetables, you have to figure it out. So as in the story you were referencing, you know, I started working at the farmer's market and I had to figure this out because people were coming to me and they needed answers. Yes. So uh, (laughs) radish butter was my first answer and still one of my best. Uh, No no doubt. And you've only grown from there. Um, I love the new book and I love that it is so vegetable centric in that you share beautiful pots of soup and warmth and comfort and excuses to eat with your hands. But I think my favorite chapter is very much in line with the way I cook and I know you cook. And it's really a genius title. And I'd like to focus on it. You call them barely recipes. Hmm, that's my favorite chapter too. So yes. I'm so excited. Who doesn't love a barely, barely a recipe kind of, it, it's a method more or, or a technique or an insight, right? Exactly. It's a, it's just like a little nudge to help you just to make something more delicious with, you know, the least work possible. Okay. So first up, roasted asparagus with yummy sauce. And by the way, yummy sauce might be my new title for just about everything that dresses a plate. What is that? What's what's in that? Oh, it's yummy sauce. So yummy sauce is actually, this is a good story. My mother uh, worked in a natural foods kitchen Mm -hmm. in the, you know, in the late 70s, early 80s. So she was making like tofu whipped cream and, you know, all the hippie food. And they put together this little pamphlet of recipes that they would give out to people Oh, I hope you still have that. I have it. It's stained. It has pictures of my mother, like, in her overalls. It's amazing. I love it. (laughs) And yummy sauce is a recipe. Well, it's based on a recipe from that book. And I actually, that's one of the few recipes that I repeated um, from my second book to my third. Because I, I have it with salmon in my... Uh, in my second book. And but I, I, I remember it, it by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I remember it from Homemade Kitchen. 
And, right. and I don't know that we talked about it, but can you I teach us? I don't think we did. Can you teach us to make yummy sauce, please? Oh, yes, gladly. So yummy sauce is butter, garlic, soy sauce, or tamari. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the magic ingredient is nutritional yeast which is a sort of hippie food ingredient for sure, but it's actually a great tool to have in the kitchen. It's a little bit cheesy and... Um, I think it would, it would, many people would talk about it as a new mommy flavor. Oh, a new mommy bomb for sure. Exactly. So, and it's, it's great on popcorn, but it's in this sauce. It sort of creates this wonderful, salty, rich, uh, buttery sauce. And with the garlic, it's like you could do it on anything, but asparagus is Mm. pretty mind blowing. It's wonderful. Congratulations. The book is really beautiful. And no matter the vegetable, you have taught us the central lesson that you really shouldn't mess with a good thing. But the answers, yes, keep it simple. The answers to vegetable humdrum are in the new cookbook release from Alana Chernilla called Eating from the Ground Up. It is available now everywhere. And you want to follow Alana's culinary escapades because they are beautiful um, on all of social media uh, and especially on Instagram at Alana Chernilla, C-H-E-R-N-I-L-A. Alana, let's not go so long. Come back, please, so that we can talk summer veggies. Yes. Oh, I'd love to. Till the next time. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of gastronomic dedication and inspiration. I hope that you'll open your mind, expand your palate, and tune in every Sunday to gain delicious knowledge on the wonderful world of food. I will leave you with, as promised, my last bite for the hour on the topic of phyllo. If you tuned in to the start of this show, you heard me speak about the wonder of the freezer aisle, and these are actually one of my favorite party tricks. Homemade phyllo cups are so simple to make, and they're a beautiful vessel for both savory and sweet fillings. On the savory side, you can fill them with tuna or egg salad. You get a really fancy presentation. For a sweet dessert, put a scoop of ice cream inside each cup, drizzle with sea salt caramel or Sambuca chocolate sauce. Now I'm making myself hungry. Or fill them with raspberries and cream or chocolate mousse. They're just so good. You'll preheat your oven to 425 degrees. Arrange a sheet of phyllo on a large cutting board. Brush it with melted butter. Repeat until there are six layers. Then you'll cut four by four inch squares and fit each square of layers into a muffin pan. You'll want to press the phyllo into the cups of the muffin pan and bake for about 10 minutes until they're light brown and crispy. Store them at room temperature and you have made a homemade phyllo cup. I will post the recipe on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off. I thank you for listening and I hope you continue to eat well.